0: Hi everyone, I'm here with Freddie Silva today and I really enjoyed this conversation. We're going to start in a place we hadn't planned on starting, but I love this conversation because so often the cataclysmic thinking that we have all been exposed to and all of us can embrace one way or another, uh, especially with the emergence of all of the newer understandings of the Younger Dryas period, mass extinction events, uh, you know, devastation of the environment and so forth, that leaves people feeling pretty darn hopeless. And then comes the story This is so, this this is so unnecessary to be essentially become extinct, have all of our knowledge wiped out and to have to start over again as amoeba, so to speak. I mean, that's, that's kind of the story, right? Well, what I'm saying and what Freddie's saying is that is not the case. We're going to go counter on that. Knowledge is not lost. Knowledge remains. And he's talking about um, this through the study of indigenous cultures who have maintained the deep wisdoms and deep knowledge throughout the ages, throughout mass extinction periods even, and here it is today. And so it, uh, we're looking at some interesting beings whose job it is on this planet to continue reseeding, sharing uh, and inculcating this knowledge into cultures, even after we have been challenged. So we're going to talk about the shining ones. So without further ado, here we go to Freddie. Freddie, welcome once again. It's so good to see you. I haven't. Oh, it's been a whole month since we were in Sardinia.
1: <laughs> I know, at a cafe and uh, doing extraordinary research and coming up with wonderful things.
0: The know- very last moment I remember is, I think... You had a glass of wine, and I had something exotic, and we were all cheering. It's a wrap.
1: And we don't remember anything after that. No, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: no, it's a lovely place. I can't wait to go back, actually. There's so much there to uh, uncover.
0: And you've uncovered more since that trip. And we're um, guys in production right now putting all of that together. We have four shows coming up. Freddie, you're featured in every one of them. And we're bringing in really wonderful information about – sardinia's shining ones and this isn't so a place you had really gone to before you once you got your feet on the ground and you started um, investigating for yourself literally on the ground there among these very very ancient sites then you began seeing a portrait rise which we're going to get into in a little bit but mostly we're saving the sardinia story for the four pieces we've done on gaia and we're going to stick with the book missing lands because the same story seems to be repeating itself in Sardinia. We want to look at the phenomena, but first of all, tell us about Asteroid Day and why we're talking about this first.
1: (laughs) Uh, Fans of Queen Rejoice, Brian May, who was the uh, originator of Asteroid Day and the uh, astrophysics group and the people who are interested in uh, near-Earth objects, uh, got together yesterday uh, to basically tell the world, well, it all doesn't have to be doom and gloom. The trick is to uh, be prepared, and luck always favors the prepared. And what can we do about uh, these errant objects, of which, right now, as we speak, the Earth is flying through at ridiculous speed, going through a massive field of debris? And we do this every June, and we we'll repeat it again every November, year in, year out. And their point is, as it was pointed out to us by our predecessors, is that. Sometimes we are lucky, and sometimes we're not so lucky, and big objects do hit us, and we kind of start uh, not quite from scratch, but there are a lot of survivors, the knowledge survives, there are people who are designated to continue the momentum, and we build from what our predecessors had. So it's, I actually find this story very encouraging, because there's people who've gone through the whole process before, and they basically were warning us to keep a track of the skies, but no matter what happens. Someone is going to get through this, we're going to rebuild, and we're going to continue as we were before. Uh, so I kind of find the story very encouraging, despite all the, the gloominess around it. It doesn't have to be that way.
0: I agree with you, Freddie. And I think it's always interesting to keep in mind that, well, th- this, is, this is my view of reality in life. And that is, I don't believe any soul is here um, against their own will. That any being who has chosen to occupy one of these physical bodies is here because they've chosen to be here. It's a big deal to incarnate into this physical world, and there has to be a commitment there. And there's also knowledge of the times that we're born into and the potentials for, you know, rising and declining civilizations during that particular time. So, as beings, we're incarnating now. We're, we're flying through debris. Most For the most part, it's leaving us alone at the moment. Uh, someday, sooner or later, as you say, it seems that something will impact somewhere and it will impact civilization there and even perhaps globally. But the story is about how... These deep knowledge bases continue to be reseeded and thrive throughout our human history, vast, vast human history. So tell us first why you wrote Missing Lands, and then let's dive into the first part of the story.
1: I wanted to really get into a book that talks about an ancient civilization from, the point of, from a human point of view, uh, that we have a lot of information, there's a lot of people are doing the same topic, but the one thing that was missing is the gods. Who were they? Who were yeah. these people? Were they separate people? Did they come from somewhere else? Were they humans? Uh, were they connected in some way? And more importantly, where did they live? Uh, And uh, that's the challenge that I set myself. I wanted a nice, simple book to write. I was so wrong. Uh, Again, it goes, you have to look at, uh, I mean, you look at a culture that uh, basically went underwater 12,000 years ago. So, where do you begin? Uh, You begin with the people who survived, you begin with the indigenous cultures. And I found that the further away you go from Europe, which is the sort of de facto center of civilization, the further you go away from Europe, the more interesting the story gets. And if we look at the point of view that historians are saying, well, these people were hunter-gatherers, they were primitive. Well, I would argue that if if they were primitive people, how did they come up with such structured stories, such well-detailed scenarios and incredible observations? Because when you read the flood stories and then this about the gods, it seems to me that they weren't just making things up. These were eyewitness accounts. And when you select something from, say, the Waitahai in New Zealand, which hardly anyone knows about, or the people in South America, you find out the two stories are actually connected. And when you link that to Easter Island, those stories fret together. And from there, you go to the Polynesian Islands around the Pacific Rim, and you end up in Mesopotamia. All of these stories are interlinked. The gods are all interconnected as they were part of a kind of a, a global brotherhood and sisterhood because the women involved as well don't get to hear much about them, uh, but they had the most important part of this story. And uh, that's why I wanted to bring this out, give it a sort of a human angle, Uh, Not just a bunch of notes on a paper to say, well, they're built with huge rocks and they're very heavy, which is great, but it gets too abstract after a while. I want to get more into the nitty-gritty of who these people were, what were they doing here, where did they come from, and what do they want with us? And I found the story to be very compelling.
0: I find it to be compelling, too. And what I... um I I really liked the starting place in New Zealand. A lot of people don't know much about the culture that you're speaking of. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is kind of an introduction of something new. And what I loved was the expansion of the story when we were in Sardinia into potentially Sardinia as one of these ancient civilizations. Um, Now, one thing that we talked about both in Sardinia and we talk about in your book is these were distinctly different kind of being that had very specific and unique features that are uh, essentially explained in the same way the world over, handed down from generation to generation. They're describing what appear to be the same people who always show up and are always there for the redevelopment. So we're going to 12,000. Now, another phenomenon involved in this is um, the story of Atlantis. Now, when we went to Sardinia, the Sardinians believe that Sardinia is Atlantis, or at least a part of Atlantis. So they think their history does go back that far and is very rich. So let's set the stage at what was going on and what happened about 12,000 years ago and I've done a number of interviews on this and you've talked to many people, too. So we'll kind of skip through this quickly. Talk about the catechism and then let's jump over to New Zealand to start the story. And also, I love Easter Island. Love that part because that's supposed to be the <laughs> remnant of Lemuria.
1: Oh, yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe and and, and possibly. Um, yeah, I mean, 12,000 years ago, there were actually two catastrophes. There was the one that began the Younger Dryas that everybody talks about, which was the first, uh, sorry, the second sinking of Atlantis. Uh, and then the uh, people that survived, and this is why I love about the story, because there's a certain bit of sweetness to it. They had this hope. They rebuilt the former mansions of the gods, something that the Egyptians talk about a lot. And then they literally had... Oh, 900 years before they went for the same problem again. If you think uh, we have it bad today, you should have been in their shoes. Uh, they had two cataclysms to deal with, not just uh, you know uh, uh, some extinction events, but they did it elegantly. They uh, were able to uh, figure out the bigger picture and they rebuilt their former world in different parts around the world and things just proceeded as they were. And the result is us. It's our civilization. Uh, we're the ones who basically inherited that ancient culture. So the thing to keep in mind about Atlantis is that one, the story is repeated in the Yucatan with exactly the same dates that the Egyptians gave Solon who then gives the story to Plato. So Plato is vindicated. It's also indicated by the fact that the uh, glacial deposits in Greenland also show a massive catastrophe in 9,700 BC that finished off the Younger Dryas, so we have geological evidence to back up these stories. But the better part of this is that the entire story goes around the world, because when you go to places like uh, the uh, Yucatan and New Zealand and South America... They describe these gods exactly the same way. They're very tall. They're humanoid, but they're not quite human. But they were not phased by them, as in to say, if your concept of aliens is uh, little green men and uh, gray people, that's not what they were talking about. These people were very humanoid, of just eight and a half feet tall, sometimes about nine and a half feet tall, redhead, green eyes, sometimes blonde, blue eyes, which is a bit weird when you see these people in Polynesia, They really stand out. Uh, And uh, they had elongated skulls. Uh, They had a certain elegance about them. They were very uh, thin, very elegant, almost uh, the classic Nordic uh, Caucasian uh, look that we have today. And uh, they call them by two different names around the world, almost like nicknames. And one of them was the shining ones, uh, and one were the watchers. Uh, and you'll find the same story with the Hopi, who call them the lookers. Now, when you start looking at these different cultures and seeing how they describe these people, that's when the stories begin to inter- interconnect and lead back to what we used to call the Anunnaki, the people of Anu, who've been given such a terrible... Terrible public relations uh, exercise they had been made in uh, a dark people. It turns out they weren't. Uh, people have latched onto the darker side of the story, which is maybe a 10% of the story. Uh, it's just like humans we have good people and not so good people. Uh, the gods had the same issue as well. There were some people who were doing things for you know, not quite uh, good reasons, but the fact is, there's a much more positive story behind this brotherhood. And uh, the reason why they call them the Shining Ones, and I love this, is because they used to smear some kind of lubricant on their skin as though the sun was having a detrimental effect on their skin. It was almost like a, a suntan lotion. That's why they shone. Um, also the fact that there was a metaphor because they were much more intelligent, they were much more spiritually developed than ordinary humans. So they were elevated to the status of gods because of that. Uh, And they were, of course, given the nickname Watchers because they couldn't directly intervene in people's affairs. They were there to guide. They would suggest things to humans, and then humans would go and create their cultures. That's how we ended up in the position to where we are today. So these are all very beneficial things that I find around the world that paint a much different picture than what we've been told. The fact that these people were also part of a worldwide network of help that we have, and they're still around, if you ask many of the indigenous people.
0: Yes, we talked about some of that um, in our Sardinia interview. When do you think, as far as representations we would recognize, they were last embodied in a way, uh, say in in public figures uh, globally?
1: That's a tough one to say because what I hear back from the indigenous people is that they keep a very low profile. Uh, You will never know who they really are. They literally try to blend in and just pretend they don't even exist. They don't draw attention to themselves in the way you would. Sometimes I even wonder if Mother Teresa was one of them, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, quite tiny as a person but she never wanted attention to be drawn on her. Um, the Zuni and the Hopi and the Har of New Zealand have come the closest to defining them, uh, saying that sometimes uh, in times past they used to physically connect these people. They weren't of the imagination, they were not a metaphor. Um, there was always associated with Orion as a constellation but that's not to say they were actually from Orion, they were able to go backwards and forwards and yet they were also here on Earth, but they weren't alien, they were just like you and me. That's what I found perplexing and yet encouraging at the same time, because they said we had contact with these people, we defined our social groups around these people and also as a mirror image of the bell stars of Orion. These weren't just metaphors and symbols, these were real life events. And uh, over the years, uh, especially in the last 3,000 years, they said there's been less contact. The contact has been more on a shamanic level. It's as though the, these gods decided that, You know, we got tired of being beaten up by people when we come down and gave them some help. So we decided to just sort of connect with people on a much more subtle level. So the wisdom keepers turned out to be the main point of contact with these people. But at the same time, the Zuni still say that once in a while, they'll still appear in the desert southwest of America in their flying shields. And I was having a lovely conversation with Clifford Mahouti, who I can talk to for hours, He's mm-hmm. a, an illuminating guy. What
0: a lovely man.
1: Lovely man. And uh, he said, yeah, uh, one of the, my favorite stories is when I take some people out from NASA or uh, some physics group or some real he-man, we go out in the middle of the desert with a Ford the F-150, you know, and we'll sit there, you know. Chewing the breeze, and before you know it, they see their first uh, view of one of these flying shields. And you've never seen these people run so fast in your life back to their truck. I said, There's nothing to be afraid of, they're our brothers and sisters, they're here to help. Uh, So they still come along once in a while. And uh, they said that you know, this was still going on before the uh, recent ancient alien uh, thing Uh, you know, the big sort of whatever you want to call it. Um, I have other words for it (laughs) a craze. Um, but they're before the fad came along, uh, this was still going on. We're very comfortable with these people, and they're just like us. They just want to assist. And it's interesting that we are going for these big changes right now because whenever we have come across big changes in the earth, whether it's uh, environmental uh, or human change, these people do show up, and they give us the tools with which to proceed to the next stage of evolution. So, again, it's a positive message when you come down to it.
0: And there's been some evidence. Um, I was shown imagery in a small group about uh, close to 20 years ago now on um, some remains of people that looked exactly, as you're speaking, from these clay tubes they were buried in in the Southwest. Now, we always have to wonder, is it hoax? And sometimes it's hard to discern that, but the person that was sharing this information was threatened and did go silent ultimately. So you have to wonder what he was really onto, but the images shown were exactly what you speak of. Very tall individuals, white, red, white, white skinned individuals, red hair, um, rather sophisticated and unusual looking clothing on, even in upright positions in these clay tubes, burial tubes, so to speak. And they were very well preserved. I'm just saying to validate what you've just said that I have seen some of those images and I found it very peculiar at the time, not knowing the larger story. So. Let's go to Egypt. Let's go to Samaria and how these figures would have interfaced after the Great Deluge in Egypt and Samaria.
1: Well, the Egyptian story is extraordinary. Uh, In fact, there's a book that I have that I always rely on because it's written by a wonderful woman, the uh, the late Eve Raymond uh, from Manchester University in England. And she deciphered the uh, building texts at Edfu, which is basically a... um, A synopsis of a very old book that was already considered extremely ancient by the time the ancient Egyptians got hold of it. And when the Greeks finally settled in in Egypt and they rebuilt the temples in the way that we see them today, so thank God for them, otherwise we'd be going to see a bunch of rubble down the Nile. um, They found parts of the books and they figured, well, just in case this stuff gets um, lost, we're going to hammer into the walls with hieroglyphs exactly in the way they would have done it in the old days, all the information that's there. And Eve basically deciphered the, uh, these texts. And what they were saying is that the gods, the uh, followers of Horus, they call themselves, uh, in fact, the full title is Shining Ones, Followers of Horus. So they're the same people from Mesopotamia and from South America and from New Zealand and from Easter Island, um, they said that we, they, were, they really had been in Egypt um, at the beginning of the Younger Dryas when the first catastrophe hit, and part of their island was already sinking into the ocean. Now, they placed their uh, story somewhere in the Indian Ocean, not far from where the coast of uh, Arabia is today. And uh, they said that we had begun to rebuild the former mansions of the gods uh, and settled in a place that was, had a rainy climate that was actually a very good place to start a new civilization because most of the earth was still covered by ice. So you had a small strip around the, uh, between the tropics Uh, which was habitable. The rest of the earth was not that habitable, which is why you find so many of the ancient structures within that thin band of the earth. And uh, they said that we're preparing, and uh, they had this uh, um, vision that there was another catastrophe coming, and they had to prepare yet again, and that's where you get the ibis-headed god, Jehuti, or Toph, as the Greeks called them, to go out and build pyramids. And it's actually in the original texts uh, that they built them 300 years before the second hit, which is in 9,700 BC. So we now have a connection to here to Robert Boval and Adrian Gilbert's work about dating the, the framework of the Great Pyramids of Giza. So these people were basically building for something, in a matter which would survive the next catastrophe because when that hits, they knew that these buildings would survive. So it explains quite neatly why they were using very, very large rocks. Uh, the Osirian, the biggest masonry in Egypt, uh, up the road in Baalbek, 1,600-ton uh, rocks. There's no crane on earth that can lift these things. Obviously, they're meant for these things to outlast whatever catastrophe was coming. So they were thinking already forward. And they built this culture before and after the flood in that part of the world, and then took it to other parts of the world. This is where you get the stories are overlapping in south of India, where they also lost a landmass, which was itself part of this bigger landmass called Mool, or as we came to know it, Lemuria. And uh, as the indigenous people of the Cook Islands said to me, you won't find these places because the earth has changed so much with the inundation, the rise of sea level, sedimentation, geological upheaval. Um, there's no way you can figure it out. And I had a conversation with Robert Schock as well, off the record, and he said, no, it's as good as geologists as we are, we will not be able to figure out what the original landmass were or what the shapes of the islands were where they lived in because everything is so radically different. Because uh, there was one landmass, one particular island where the gods lived, which is now where the Arabian Peninsula is now uh, now exists, and that was a huge surprise to me. Because I always said these people lived on islands for the most part; they kept themselves to themselves mm-hmm. and interact with humans whenever it was necessary. So and that was when it was necessary.
0: So do you think uh, now having been to Sardinia, Sardinia may have been one of those outposts for these shining ones? Because the artwork work that they have in their archeological museum there shows these tall individuals unusually dressed, very large eyes, and the large eyes were depicted around the world with these shining ones. And you and I were speaking about it that we don't think it's necessarily a physical feature, but more metaphorical, they had the ability to see, they had sight. So let's talk about that for just a moment. That and also um, the notion, uh, now that you've had a chance to really dig in and think about it a bit, do you think Sardinia may have been one of their outposts?
1: I think it was because the Egyptians and the Greeks who picked up the story later said that uh, the empire was much bigger. I mean, the island itself of Atlantis was in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, That story is emphatically claimed in the Yucatan by the people who moved there from that island. They were called the Itz. So we have a backup story here. But uh, what they're also saying is that uh, it was the influence of Atlantis stretched through the Straits of Gibraltar yes. into the Mediterranean. Yes. So they didn't necessarily have to live there. They influenced It's a bit like the Roman Empire. Uh, they had an influence over a wide region of Europe and Asia Minor, but didn't necessarily always live in those areas. They had a few little staging posts and a few local people who administered Those staging posts. So I get a sense that there's something much bigger going on in Sardinia because some of the research that I did, you know, even before I got there, just looking at the alignment of temples, which tells you so much about commemorating the time when the the monument was built, I'm getting ridiculous dates of close to 8,000 BC, uh, which really surprised the hell out of me. I thought if we get to about three and a half thousand BC, I'll be very happy. But once you've got that story there in Sardinia, and you've got the feature with the big eyes, which is, again, like I said, it's seen all around the world, and it's basically to show that these people had their eyes open. Yes. They could see spiritually, and also the fact that they had a better developed sense of intuition than normal people. They were able to see through things. That was what the metaphor was always about. And the fact that the culture itself, called the it Nuragic culture, which is not a local word. It's a word that I found partly in Malta and also in Azerbaijan, and Armenia, which takes us back to the area of the lords of Anu, yet again, who are also depicted with large eyes, the original Anunnaki, uh, and literally these, ta- these places that, that they built, these beautiful towers in Sardinia, the Nuraghi, literally means the assembly place of the people that hold the light, in other words, the shining people or the shining ones, which is the nickname of the Anu, who is one of the principal people or the principal name of the gods before the flood. So I find that evidence compelling at the moment that we're layering, you know, little bits of pieces of information around Sardinia that seems to be projected all around the world as well. Uh, there's a sort of an overlap with other cultures, and that's what I find exciting about it, because we had no idea that's where it was gonna go. So whenever Geology uh, uh, lets you down or hasn't got enough information, you can look at orientation of the temple, you can look at the etymology and the local myths, which all talk about the importance of Orion, which is always the symbol of those people. So there's a lot of overlapping pieces of evidence here, which is now beginning to build into a a wonderful whole.
0: It really is. I mean, what an exciting time to be alive. I don't know if you've been um, kind of giving any attention to one of the other uh, newer explorations that suggests that the capital city of Atlantis is actually now positioned in what is Mauritania. Have you seen any of that in the imagery (laughs) and such? <laughs> I mean, no, you know, I,
1: know. <laughs> I just,
0: I know, I, and it's, I find it fascinating because this is how it's done. Someone finds something that they relate to, maybe something, an artifact or something of a visual nature. And then starts applying their logic and their own codes and their own measurements to it, and can make a very neat and tidy story. And suddenly, it deflects everyone's attention, like you know, a laser pointer over in another direction. And I'm not saying it's not worth exploring. I think everything is worth exploring. But on the other hand, there, I, what I like about what you've done is you're looking at where there is consistency. And where there's some kind of rep- repetition in terms of the cultural knowledge. And exactly. so it's interesting to explore all these other things. But again, let's put our attention where we have some kind of consistent proof going on that's creating a larger portrait. We can always add all these pieces in. I mean, that's what the exploration and in- Sardinia was all about but... Oh,
1: exactly. Yeah, and I mean, it's uh, it's great to speculate. I mean, it's fun. It's the problem is when you start putting speculation as fact, that's where you get into lots of trouble. It makes our work much more difficult. Yes. I like to hear what the ancient people had to say because once, once you start looking, once you do as much traveling as I do around the world and you ask local people for their story and stop relying on, uh, you know, uh, white people from Europe, Uh, and all the historians, not that they're all bad. I'm just saying that they don't have the complete story. It's a very myopic vision that they've given us. Uh, It's a very conservative field afterwards, and I feel for that. Uh, I feel the frustration. Um, they They want to publish. They don't want to be ostracized by their own academics. I get that. But the more you travel, the more I get a bigger sense of a seamless story that's going around. And the one thing that they said is, we really do not really know where everything was. We have... Echoes of the story in the middle of the Atlantic. We have echoes in the middle of the Sahara, but the problem with the Sahara is it used to be full of the Atlantic, and the Atlantic literally moved from Giza all the way through Mauritania that way. So, yeah, I agree. I think there may be something in that sort of anomaly that you can see on Google Earth. Uh, it looks almost like either there was a big uh, sort of circular construction with ripples around it, or something yes. itch. The, um, the area, and he created the ripple effect, that's yes. also possible. Until we go there and look for, uh, look for it, it's in a very awkward area to examine. We won't know. But they're saying it's, it's possible there it might have been an outpost there. There was certainly an outpost where the Arabian Peninsula now exists. That used to be a circular island with canals. And that story is in the Cook Islands in, the, in Polynesia. Now, fancy that, having to go all the way to the extreme uh, middle of the Pacific to find the story about the missing land of the gods somewhere where yes. now the Arabian Peninsula is. There's one south of India where the Tamil culture said, yeah, we had five academies that we can date back at least 16,000 years that slowly were transgressed by the ocean and we kept coming further and further inland to where it is today at Madurai. That's where the latest academy of knowledge. Exists and there, and there's another one in New Zealand, which is the uh, the South Island. There's a specific place called the Birthplace of the Gods. I've been there six times. I can't get enough of it. So, uh, which place is
0: that again, Freddie? Uh,
1: the Birthplace of the Gods.
0: Yeah, well, I'm saying geographically. Where did you say that was again?
1: The South Island of New Zealand. It's called yes. Kuta or if you're not that confident, uh, it's called Castle Hill. And uh, it literally mm-hmm. is an outdoor academy. And there's a central. There's three sites. Um, it's sacred to the Waitaha, who were not even the original people there. They said that there was a group of gods called the Urukeu that used to visit the Waitaha when they lived on Easter Island before the flood. Yes. It's just been published. This is all oral tradition. And I, I can't believe people haven't read this because it's so incredible. And they, they're actually depicting the gods in huge catamarans going through the Pacific as the flood is hitting. They said, we were overwhelmed by tidal waves. Thank God we're in the middle of the Pacific. Otherwise, if we'd been near a coastal re- region, we'd have been completely destroyed by a tsunami. Because obviously when you're in the ocean, you only get big waves. It's only when you get close to a, a continental shelf that you see the big tidal wave. And they were going backwards and forwards to this place called the birthplace of the gods as easily as you and I go shopping for milk.
0: Well, uh, and you talked about the boats with no oars in there. Those yep. are So you Those have to look at what might this mean, right?
1: Did they float? Did they have sails? Uh, there is one story. And um, it's one island, I think it's on the Flores, somewhere in the middle of the uh, Sundar Strait, which is in, in, in Indonesia. They actually have a village which is laid out in the original plan of a boat that they said, the villagers said, it had an engine room now, these are people that, that have an oral tradition that goes back 12,000 years, and they said that ship had a, an engine.
0: Uh-huh.
1: You wonder, <laughs> how did they come up with this? Uh-huh. And this where the big monolith is, that would be pretty much where the machinery was to propel them across the, uh, the ocean, but the one thing that's always consistent in these stories And I hope you will say the same thing too, that they definitely got about on these boats which got uh, through the ocean very, very easily, whether it was a sail, whether it was uh, an engine, or whether some kind of floating mechanism, because we do hear that a lot in the Native American Southwest, that these were things that floated uh, over the water. There may have been three different things going on here, uh, because in the end, you have the same story about the Vimana craft that also seemed to have been floating. So, excuse me, uh, if we connect that to the stories of the uh, levitation of stones that they used to build the temples with, which are again is a global story uh, and it has been reproduced on a very, very small scale uh, in Princeton University using a piece of quartz and sound, and they managed to get use the right application of sound to levitate this piece of quartz. So it seems to me that they had the ability to overcome gravity, that's one of the stories that you hear again and again around the world that these gods possessed. Um, so it's, it, it, the story gets, you know, it's all fused together in such a beautiful, seamless way the more you go around, but the one in New Zealand definitely Hits me because it was the fact that the Niuorokeu, who are very tall, red-headed, they used to use Easter Island as kind of a, uh, a pit stop uh, mm-hmm. to say hello, exchange pleasantries, get some coconuts, and move on. And then when they went back, they avoided New Zealand. Sorry, they avoided Easter Island because of the way the currents work, and they ended up in the big land to the east. And I thought, are we missing a land uh, to the? east of East Island, because they did say back then when it was an archipelago, and they're very clear about this, there were several islands involved in East Island.
0: But is in Chile east of East Island? Is. Yes.
1: Exactly. And I thought either either we're missing something or they're talking about South America. And, of course, when you get to Tiwanaku, which was a big inland ocean and it had a few islands there, the island of the sun is still there, and Tiwanaku itself is also, when it was uh, – What, 15,000 years ago, it was surrounded by uh, an inland ocean. So, to all extents and purposes, it was an island as well. And um, when you look at the actual etymology of the name Tiwanaku, I was astonished. You're going to learn Ayamara for this. Uh, This is why my books take a long time to write. And uh, it says, My people. Uh, that's what my guide said, and he's an Aymara guide. And I said, But Aku is not a, uh, a local word, that's an Egyptian word which, which means shining being. And he said, Yeah, you've got a good point there. So I said, Would I be correct in saying that this is the city of my shining people? And he said, Actually, that's a very good observation. It's <laughs> coming from my local guide in Bolivia. and said, you know, they've realized that, that Aku does not exist in our language. That's an Egyptian word. So we find the shining people at Tiwanaku going backwards and forwards to Easter Island and the birthplace of the gods. Uh, that's a pretty cool story. And, again, it's not a matter of opinion. These are the local people telling us the story.
0: Yes, and this brings up a couple of points. First of all, explain to us, um, generally speaking, in – in. uh In the sense of, as we talked about these stories that repeat themselves, what did they generally teach the local populace? Because this came up again when we were inside uh, some of the Naragi in Sardinia. It even came up intuitively that we could see what was going on in there that matches this. What were the shining ones teaching the local citizenry?
1: You know, it's really basic stuff when you think about it. What's the big secret? What was the one thing? Well, Uh, Be nice to each other, dude. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Just be nice to one another, respect each other, um, try not to eat meat. I mean, they were vegetarians, the gods, apparently. Uh, I couldn't survive as a god, apparently. Uh, I eat vegetables twice a week, uh, not not seven days, but I'm getting there. Uh, but they said, yeah, try to uh, avoid meat as much as you can. Try to avoid, avoid alcohol. Uh, learn about civilization, about be sharing and, c- and collecting and being able to give to others who can't fend for themselves and then teach them to be resourceful. Don't just bail them out teach them how to grow plants, how to domesticate crop, how to uh, harness animal husbandry, because animals will work with you if you treat them correctly. So these are basic things, but they got beyond that, which is to do with the fact that you can also, once you get to a certain point in your stage of development, you can also develop internally to be at one with the universe around you and understand how it works on a subtle level to the point where, yes, you can manipulate the earth energy, uh, which is something that I teach in my temple building classes, of how to move the energy lines of the earth. Or if you're a scientist uh, tuning in, a telluric current. Uh, We know they exist. We can map them. We can actually find out where they are. Uh, So you can move these energy lines for beneficial purposes. Uh, You can also use the power of prediction. You can be able to develop your intuition in order to predict future events so you are better prepared. You may even be able to, uh, to a certain degree, Uh, manipulate those events so that you can actually overcome them to a certain degree, which brings us back to the original story about asteroids. I'm not going to give the ending of the book away because there is a positive message to this. But there is a way you can influence the outcome of potential events to your advantage and for the advantage of the greater good. So when we come down to it, these people were actually new age teachers. There's nothing really new under the sun. Uh, We're looking for some major uh, unknown quantity that they were teaching, but that's essentially what they were doing. They were saying, you can actually be civilized and live amongst each other and be nice to each other and elevate yourselves above barbarity. You don't have to be like those animals and those people over there who are eating each other like cannibals, dragging the women by the hair into the cave, because there was that stuff going on as well. You can do better than this. You don't have to live in a world where there's fear and there's hatred. You can all get along easily, and we can all evolve exactly as we have done because we've been through the process. We're now going to tell you about it. So again, I find the whole message very, very positive.
0: Mm -hmm. I find it positive. I do. I find it very positive as well. And in addition, I was was
1: looking for something else as well. By the way, (laughs) what I was looking for something deeper when I was researching, I went. My God, it's so obvious, you know, that the message is always pretty much the same.
0: Well, and we tapped into this when we were in the caves, yeah. um, we tapped into what they were doing in the day with the local citizenry. And again, they were choosing the most open and adept among them to train as their the seers um, for their for their tribe, for their culture. Um, And not only that, beginning to introduce mathematics and architecture and some of this to those who are more advanced. And I think it's important to understand that um, when anybody is traumatized, certainly when an entire planet of people has been traumatized, we do tend to revert to more barbaric ways because we're in shock and we're down to survival. And you can only imagine how these people were received at the time. I mean, they would be, even if they were just very advanced humans, um, to bring such a message of clarity and hope and such to humanity had to have been, well, of course, they were noted as gods, as shown. Well, it,
1: was, it was difficult, uh, and I've read both sides of the story. They, uh, they were loved. Uh, by people who survived. They, this is why they're still declared gods today. And a god, by the way, uh, is not a white guy with a big beard. It's basically anyone who has knowledge and control of the laws of nature yes. is a god, because a god was uh, this light bulb, it was this table, it was this microphone. Everything was imbued with a certain consciousness. That's what a god is. We've taken it into a a, a Catholic concept, which is very divorced from the original understanding. So these groups of people, these survivors, were saying, well, thank you. Uh, We really appreciate you elevating us and teaching us mathematics and knowledge of the stars so we can calculate these big calendars like they do in Yucatan to track enormous lengths of time because that was the point. Keep track of what's going on in the sky. This is going to happen again, but you're going to be prepared. And then you can prepare and you can survive and some won't. But there's also the other part of the story where there were, uh, the gods would uh, sow these seeds of civilization from which humans did develop their civilizations, and they would move on to other hotspots. And there were some points where they were not welcome. They were beaten up. They were had throne, uh, stones thrown at them. They were basically, some were killed. And eventually, like the story in South America with Vida Kosher and his uh, group of white Panti, which means shining ones. um, They basically said, adios, we've done as much as we can, we're getting tired of being crucified, and now we're going to get on our boat and sail across the ocean, and they disappeared. They completely vanished again, back to the remains of their islands, which of course today are no more. So again, they, they also came under the influence of uh, things that you and I also come under, which is basically there's, there's good things in humanity and there's also bad things. They succumb to the same problems as well. Just because they were more advanced doesn't mean they also didn't uh, you know, have pain and have problems to deal with. I think we all have that, but they did it with grace and that was the difference.
0: What I like about this too, Freddie, is I'm really tired of hearing of the Anunnaki and of hearing as of the Anunnaki, uh, Anunnaki as those who enslaved the human species and continue enslaving them today. It's a really flat, one-dimensional story that keeps being perpetuated um, and then extrapolated out to you can recognize them in this way today and so forth. <laughs> Okay. There, so there have always been greedy interests that that operate from the shadows and seek to control. That has always been, and yeah. we're certainly under the influence of that too, to an extent today, to, to, even to a large extent. even worse. In fact, I read something really interesting in a little book yesterday talking about um, what Orwell was trying to, warn us of and then what um, Huxley was trying to warn us of in Brave New World versus 1984. Mm -hmm. And essentially the person writing this said it has been presumed that Huxley was correct. It's not that oppressive top-down cabal kind of treatment that is having such a devastating effect on us although it does through the media in the propagation of fear, but it's even more what Huxley had to say is that we would kind of annihilate ourselves and our own sovereignty through pleasure and overexposure to everything. That Yes. And that is kind of where we find ourselves in this era of distraction and not wanting to take into consideration some of these larger themes, such as what you're talking about. So I find it, very hopeful and beautiful, that no matter what we're being inspired to do, driven by, manipulated by, there's always this other aspect of ourselves and this other watchful presence that's saying, it's okay. Yeah, uh, uh, you're not going to lose yourselves.
1: Yeah, and no, have to remember as well these people are a minority. Uh, they, they only have power because we give it to them. Um exactly. and We keep, we lose track of this, and that's another thing that uh, comes across in the teachings that these uh, flood gods were telling people that you know you can you are your own gods, you are the people you're looking for. Yes. Um, we're just going to show you by example how to do things properly. Then we're going to leave you alone. It's up to you to develop in your own manner. Uh, it's called, if you're a Star Trek fan, um, the um, Prime Directive. Yes. Uh, because uh, the writers also picked up on this. Uh, it's called the law of non-intervention. Uh, it's a universal law. It's a beautiful thing. Very Buddhist, if you like. And uh, it was to do with the fact that we're going to give you the accoutrements of civilization, but how are you going to use those things? Uh, you can develop uh, all the necessary things, but if you go if you into that sort of fear-mongering phase, uh, uh, you will be controlled. You will come under the influence of people who will speak exactly to those fears and the more you start believing that they have the answer the more you give them power and the fact is they don't have the answer the only answer they have is to control you and we end up in the same problem that we're trying to get ourselves out of all the time it's almost like a a a theatrical joke it's like we're in this stuck in this roundabout play but there's a way and that's what the gods were saying there is a way out of this yes of karma, if you like, uh, because you become empowered by yourself. If you learn about nature, the laws of the universe, learn your place, the bigger scheme of things, then no one can control you. And by the way, uh, once your physical body dies, you go through a door into another level of reality, and you get born somewhere else. So, uh, a moment of pain. Uh, is all you need to get you to somewhere else. Don't worry about it. The Templars certainly knew about this because they picked up on the story in the 12th century. And it's an old story. It goes back to the Essenes, and they picked it up from the Persians. They picked it up from the Chinese. They got it from the Japanese. And God knows where they got it from. So we're back to this original story of self-empowerment. And that's what makes the whole sort of connection to the flood uh, story so captivating and so helpful.
0: Absolutely, and uh, personally, I've been a many-year student of her, the Hermetic path, and uh, one thing they speak about repeatedly is the notion of these beings, these these followers of Horus, um, the people of the sun, which is not to say these are aliens. These are individuals who've been incarnating on this planet as long as it's existed and have been for the not always and sometimes can shift their form a bit in frequencies, but have always been here among humans as humans to continue laying down this fo- foundational information when we when we tend to lose our way here or there. But like you say, most of all, to remind us this is in every single one of us, we all have that capability to open these exact same. Um, talents and skill sets, including even the, if you want to call it manipulation, working with natural forces, such as you do with the ley lines, right? Yeah. We and all meditation, have these abilities.
1: Meditation and things like that, uh, yes. transcendental meditation, whatever, whatever tool you want, we have all the tools. We have so many tools. Uh, uh, you can read books, you go to conferences, uh, but there's so many of these things. But, yeah, you touched on one great thing there about the followers of Horus uh, and the fact that, yeah, they keep popping in and out of history. Uh, it, there's actually a record of them going, you know, they'll set up the first pharaohs, they've got the, the people in, on the throne that can follow their principles, they'll withdraw, draw to the background. A few hundred years go by, you get a nefarious pharaoh, and they'll say, okay, we're going to come in and intervene. Because you're going down the wrong path yet again, so we're going to basically teach you what we taught you hundreds of years ago, and then they'll go back into the shadows. And the one thing uh, that uh, kind of connects these stories together, again going back to that sort of negative side, how these people are called reptilians. And I don't know who started the story. It could have been Zechariah Sitchin. I don't know. I'm not here to appropriate blame. But they, people like this, they miss out on the metaphor and the symbol of things. Because, yes, there are little miniature figurines of the Anunnaki that have been found in Sumeria uh, with you know, human bodies with little lizard heads. But they're missing the point of the metaphor. Uh, the, the usual point of connection that I draw people to is the Egyptian uh, god uh, Jehuti with the iris head. That doesn't mean that they took the body of a person and grafted the head of a bird onto a human body. That's not what they were doing. The idea was, because you, were, you had people at the time who were less schooled than the rest, The only way to communicate the fact that this person represented elegance and knowledge and wisdom was to put the head of an elegant bird that everybody could associate with, which is the ibis, and put it on the head of a person. So that when, say, a laborer who is unschooled and unlettered looks at the image of this uh, person with the head of a bird, he'll know or she'll know that, oh, this is a person who represents knowledge because look at the graceful way in which he carries himself, look at the grace of the head. So the one where we see the one with the reptilian head is actually a symbol of their badge of office. They were called the people of the serpents, and again, nothing nefarious. It was all to do with with the mark that these people understood earth energy. Earth energy has always been defined by the serpent, the way it moves and flows through the land. So they were all called the people of the serpent. They had the same uh, collective name in Portugal. In uh, Yucatan, they're called by the same name and also throughout the Pacific. In fact, the Naga people all the way through Asia. Uh, part of that group of people called the people of the seven, but it was a badge of office. They were not reptilian. So I was trying to bring that back again to the positive because sometimes these things are symbolic rather than physical.
0: That's true. And I think you have to ultimately go with how the information you're being exposed to lands inside you. And ah. that's something <laughs> that we are not, we're not taught. We should be taught from childhood how to discern. To discern truth,
1: we have to go to what weird websites we visit.
0: Yes, (laughs) well, and so the way I look at it is if you're encountering information that essentially creates more fear in you. And more disempowerment in you. You're probably not in the right place. And yeah. that's not to say that there aren't challenges. That there are. And I said this earlier. There aren't. That there aren't external forces that would love to exploit and control each and every one of us. There are. But That'd we're far more powerful than that. Yeah. And so you know, for me, I've read a number of books on on these topics about um, the post. You know the post uh, diluvian period where we have to rebuild and and as you say in western um, in Western science, they simply say well it 's kind of interesting and ironic that the same knowledge seems to pop up in different places around the world at exactly the same time. And you're saying, well, of course it does because (laughs) these individuals (laughs) out teaching the same thing at (laughs) the same time.
1: Suddenly mathematics appears at the same time. Agriculture, it all suddenly appears. In fact, NASA did a a study on this back in 1972. They were fascinated by these hotspots suddenly manifesting exactly the same time around the world. Well, that's because the knowledge that just bump into our heads, which is it's possible. We could have been having the same hallucination, popping the information from the grid. I'm totally open to that. But the fact is, it was already here, uh, because that's what the ancient people were saying all along. The, the, the knowledge was already present. Someone taught us, and we took it to another level. Yes. That's what it came down to. And in fact, it brings us to another interesting point of conversation, which is the obstacles. There are, the point of being here on Earth is to have an obstacle. Uh, one of the, the biggest things I've ever learned in my in my years, and I don't think know everything, I know a lot, but not everything, is the fact that if you're here, you're not perfect. would I mean,
0: <laughs>
1: You need to incarnate if you're perfect. You wouldn't come down here. You're here to learn. And part of the learning process is, of course, obstacles. And one of the watchers that was part of that group of the uh, Lords of Anu was Lucifer, who was basically... A helper, uh, one of the right-hand people of the ANU, uh, who said that and his task was to be given uh, to go down to, uh, off the mountain, down to the local people, because the ANU would say, you know, those people, they're getting it wrong. The only way they're going to get it right is by having a challenge. If you put a, a barrier in front of them, they have to learn to surmount it, and you learn from the lesson. Every challenge is a great lesson. And he'll go, thank you, absolutely, sir, let me handle it, leave it with me, because Lucifer means the bringer of the light. Because when you have an obstacle placed in front of you, if you learn to overcome it with grace, and you come out the other side, learning from the experience, well, you have enlightenment, you have been given the light, that's what it means. So it turns out that this watcher Lucifer was actually a very helpful person in the end.
0: Yes, and again, referring back to the her- hermetic lens on, on how it all lands in the end, through their particular uh, texts, they would say that the journey of Earth life and the challenge um, is Obviously, for many people, it tends to be our the mind-emotion matrix, and that the journey is really to begin transcending the um, power, the negative power that the emotions often keep us uh, involved in, in terms of the subconscious negative patterns in our lives, and that really. Uh, What we call um, ascension is the simple process of learning to live into the great virtues of life and not allow the lower mind and the lower uh, vice, so to speak, that exists within each and every one of us to pull us down. That's where all the challenge keeps coming, right? So this is, as you said very early on, part of what they were teaching was, you know, kindness to one another, generosity, compassion, sharing. These are Virtues, these yeah. are one of the great virtues.
1: And 8,000 years later, the Greek uh, mystics were saying exactly the same thing, know yourself. Yes. Uh, It's the same book. They were reading off the same manual. Uh, The same manual goes back to Japan in 8,000 BC. It's called the Kujiki 72. It has the 17 ways to enlightenment, which then becomes the Tao, or the Tao, which then becomes, it literally means the way. That's what the the word means. And it becomes the way that the Essenes were teaching. Yes. What they also uh, had in, uh, in Native America, that's what they had in New Zealand as well, about these groups of enlightened people that said, hey, we got a better way of living, Uh, how about doing this? And they said, okay. And uh, they basically would put, uh, the wisdom keeper of the tribe would put the information from the gods into this basket, which held all the wisdom that they'd gathered uh, during their journeys. And this basket uh, was called the kete, the kete of knowledge. And that's why you have these symbols around the world with these little baskets and little men holding onto these baskets. And there's, I mean, I, I am always fascinated to read all these stories on the internet about what did these baskets mean? You know, did they hold a potion? Uh, was it a, a man bag? Uh, did it put, uh, you know, money in there? No, uh, just go to Polynesia. They still have that word and that symbol there, just as you do on the pillars of Göbekli Tepe from 10,500 BC. The same little baskets. It literally is a place where the knowledge is to put into And those three baskets specifically on the tea pillar of Gobekli Tepe. Each one of them represents one of the belt stars of Orion. (laughs) All of these gods are intimately associated. And the Waitaha today, uh, there's only about, uh, i say, about 12,000 of them left in the South Island of New Zealand. Very quiet, shy people, uh, much like the Hopi, actually. Um, They still have their three main groups of wisdom keepers within the tribe, Each one of them is a reference to each one of the the, uh, stars in the belt of Orion. Uh, How's that for a great story?
0: Absolutely. And as you go through all these stories that you've learned, it just keeps being narrowed down to some of the most simple tenets, as we just talked about a moment ago and yes it's a lot of fun it's a lot of entertainment to be informed about all these other potentials i personally love it for myself to explore this and that out but we can't get around the fact that the truths are actually noble truths are quite simple and these beings have been present all along or still present all along. And your book does a beautiful job of showing how they showed up and were represented. It's a magnificent book. I had three pages of notes. We've probably got the first five three questions. Pages. Oh. I overstudied (laughs) again, but the reality is um, we only have so much time and people can dive in for themselves and get the really deep, rich flavor of what you've discovered along the way. So I guess we've come to the time where you can give us your kind of final take on all this without giving away the punchline.
1: Oh, the punchline. No, I never give away the punchline, but there is a silver lining to this story. Um, no, I think the, the great part of this project was literally about finding the humanity in these gods, finding out that they were just like us. They had searched and had found what we're looking for. And they gave us all the tools. We just have to go back and reread it, clear the clutter, and simplify It's a very simple message when you come down to it. But again, paradoxically, you have to learn a lot before you actually get the simple message. And it was the fact that they lived, they kept themselves to themselves, they lived mostly on islands or places that resembled islands. Most of them have now gone. Uh, The birthplace of the gods and Tiwanaku being two of the remnants of places where you can still can go to travel, uh, potentially Sardinia as well. Uh, so this is the big story of where we come from and where we're going. It's a pointed to, uh, it's like a gateway to another level of understanding just at the time when we need it most. So it's very opportune that suddenly this stuff is appearing.
0: Absolutely. Back to the future. It's all about consciousness. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to do such incredible research. And as I said, I read a couple other books in and around these subjects. And what I like about yours is that it did really bring in that human element. You're very honoring and respectful of the indigenous people who you've learned these stories uh, from and tying the pieces together in such a consistent way. So congratulations on the book Missing Lands. Everybody can find it on Amazon amazon and thank you for taking time to explain it today and we have four more episodes with you going into the deep story and it's our oh, deep wow. coming up on gaia <laughs> <laughs> cancel the subscription right now <laughs> <laughs> it was windy and blustery and rainy and some of the shots were ruined with uh, very colorful looking umbrellas uh against the backdrop of these um Niragi, but that's okay we made it work
1: yeah, it shows that we're doing really hard muddy work you know <laughs> we get in the real thing we don't sit in armchairs well we do certainly do work in armchairs but you gotta get out and get dirty you know gotta get the elbows in there
0: it was so- fun it was fun. Well, I look forward to seeing what Gaia does with it. It's in production right now. I just want to let you know that. And also let you uh, watching this right now know that as well. So you can look for that on Gaia in a couple months' time. It takes a while to produce these kinds of series. So meanwhile, Freddie, thank you so much for taking time to be with us and for writing your beautiful book.
1: Thank you. And you, the next round's on
0: you. Okay, next round is on me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us again. Missing Lance, you can find it on Amazon.com, Freddie Silva. You can also go to his site, uh, InvisibleTemples.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.